Hi there, today's March 17th, 2014, and this is Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 11. On today's show, we have Jonathan Levin on as a guest host. He's an economist at Oxford University and co-founder of Coinometrics. The topics we're covering are recent meetups in Berlin and Lille. We hear Jonathan's thoughts on the vibrant London Bitcoin scene. The latest updates on the Mount Gox story, the future of Bitcoin exchanges, Shapo's 20 million round of funding, and we ask the question whether altcoins will inflate the money supply in the future. If you like the work we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips for our tipping address. Hello and welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 11. My name is Sébastien Couture. I'm a Canadian-born user experience designer and developer based in Lille, France, and the founder of Bitcoin Talks Lille. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. I'm a Berlin-based Bitcoin entrepreneur and also the founder of the Bitcoin Startups Berlin Group. And uh, we're here with a special guest. Hi, my, my name is uh, Jonathan Levine. I'm an economist from the University of Oxford, co-founder of Coinometrics and uh, convener of the Oxford Virtual Currencies Working Group. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. us, Jonathan. No, pleasure. Yes, so this is something we've been wanting to do for a while. We've done one episode like this previously with Johan Barbie, where we had a kind of guest host on to weigh in on all the topics. And uh, now we're doing it again, so we're very excited about that. So, Jonathan, uh, where are you based? So, currently I'm based in Oxford. Um, I'm here until, until the summer. And uh, we'll, we'll see what happens for next year. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about a move to London or possibly the States. There's uh, a couple of options, but nothing, nothing set in stone. Uh, and uh, I, I go occasionally to the London meetups and I'm pretty involved in, uh, in the Bitcoin London scene and just trying to really uh, make uh, a little bit of a cryptocurrency scene happen in Oxford. Uh, Feathercoin was started in Oxford and there's plenty of researchers that are active in um, areas to do with virtual currencies and we're trying to get them together and, and produce some interesting output and, and research on, on this quick, quickly changing space. Awesome. Cool. And we were actually talking about this, uh, I think it was last episode or the one before, um, wondering what the cryptocurrency Bitcoin um, scene is like in the UK and specifically in London. So in London, it's really taking off. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of meetups uh, there's a there's definitely a Litecoin meetup, there's Bitcoin meetup. Wow. Um, run um, run very well uh, with huge attendance. So they have almost, I think it might even be weekly events. Sometimes uh, social, um, sometimes more with presentations, and very well attended throughout. Uh, I think the last one I went to um, was in yeah, a bar in, in East London, and there must have been at least 300 people there. Wow. So, wow. <laughs> there was really, there was really yeah. no, no room, <laughs> um, and it was a, a big back room of a, of a Hoxton bar um, full, of, full of enthusiastic um, cryptocurrency enthusiasts, really. And so these meetups have a particular uh-huh. format, like with presentations, just, you know, people come in and just talk about bitcoin so they, they they they've they've dabbled in various formats the 
There's a, there's a bar in Hackney that accepts Bitcoin um, called the Pembury Tavern where people go and have a more social meetup. I think that happens once every two, three weeks. Uh, and that's no format, just totally relaxed. Mm-hmm. Then they have quarterly big events uh, s- similar to the one in that Hoxton bar where they'll have like pretty celebrity, uh, pretty big people from the Bitcoin scene giving sort of maybe five or six, like 15 minute talks mm-hmm. um, about their company or about a specific issue in Bitcoin. Um, Jeremy Allaire came to one the other week, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, and they, they really, um, it's all organized by, well, one of the co-organizers is Paul Gordon, who's, uh, who's really, uh, an, uh, if anyone needs to do anything with Bitcoin in London, I suggest you go to him and ask. Because um, he's really good at connecting people and, and organizing the whole scene. Oh, that's good to know. I'll actually be in London in uh, two weeks. So I would like to do a few interviews perhaps for the podcast. Yeah, for, you, sh- uh, you should definitely speak to Paul. He's... Um, He's uh, very agreeable and, and, and we'll, we'll definitely sort you out. Okay, that would be great, yeah. Cool. I, I've also, I've seen the Meetup group has like over a thousand members on the, on meetup.com. So that's, it's really, it's very impressive. And what about, what about in your respective scenes? What, what are you seeing? So we're, so I run this Meetup here every, we do a Meetup every two weeks and we do about between three and five talks and uh the meetup group has like 200 people now i started it in um uh, october or november and for as the ten as far as the attendance goes we have between i would say at the moment between 30 and 70 people so it's 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 going it's going well too i think there's a there's definitely a lot of interest Although it doesn't sound quite as crazy as London with 300 people. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, yeah, so, and, 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 and I think the, the, the reason, part of the reason for that is uh, London's a very good place for in terms of finance. So there's a lot of people um, from the financial sector who need for need to get their head around bitcoin and sort of will come to a meetup and it's all located pretty close to the city um there's also it's it's always in the more techie end of london um david cameron likes to talk about the silicon roundabout and the kind of silicon (laughs) valley in the uk so all the meetups are very close to that as well and there's um yeah there's I think there's quite a active startup scene. Um, they've just installed the first uh, Bitcoin e- ATM near where a lot of these meetups happen. Um, yeah, I used uh, to go to that place actually. <laughs> the Shoreditch Coffee House. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it's really, um, it's really a, uh, a a vibrant scene. There's. Yeah, we can talk. We can talk more about it through through the topics, and I can see how some of these issues are going to impact in the UK moving forward. Um, but it's it's pretty exciting to be here. Cool. Speaking of meetups, we also uh, had our meetups this uh, this week. Yeah, Brian. So you had a meetup on Thursday, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, was good. It was a bit smaller than the last. Well, before we had a, a really big meetup before the. Link conference, and so this was like kind of a back to a laid back style, and 
I gave a talk on kind of incentives in Bitcoin. We're actually going to talk about some aspects of that later in the show. Um, so the basic idea is, you know, how does having a currency that's a, also a technology, how does that affect incentives for people to get in? How does it affect incentives so people start companies? So I think it's, it's an interesting topic. And um, I'm, I think I want to build on to that and do some more research to make it a really solid talk. Then we also had Meinhardt. Ben, um, there was recently a Coindesk article about him. He he built um, a kind of a mobile Bitcoin ATM with a, a card reader, a credit card reader. It was, it was like a hackathon prototype, but uh, he was demonstrating that, and it's really cool. Is that uh, and, uh, from 37 Coin? No. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, okay. um, yeah, we talked to him. Uh, and Jörg Platze talked for a few minutes. He, um, he mainly talked about his, his experience dealing with the media because I, I there's probably I'm not 100% sure if that's true but he may be the person who's been covered the most Bitcoin related or, or one of the most I think they, they actually kept track how often Room 77 has been in the media and I think he said something like 100 million times you know there's been views or TV reports or everything so since so he constantly gets media requests and he was talking a bit about how that has changed and the, the kind of nature of the request and what reporters want to talk about. So that, that was very interesting too. How was your meetup? Uh, my meetup was uh, great. Uh, it, was just, so it was the second meetup. Um, about 25 people came, so a bit more than last time because last time we were about 15, 20 people. So uh, definitely uh, I'm... Uh, I'm realizing that there's a, a community of people here that are interested in cryptocurrencies. And they just needed an outlet to or a place to meet. And um, in, in in any case, in France, I think the Lille community is. I mean, Lille is the only place aside from beside from Paris that has a meetup. Um, so it was really good. We had three talks. Uh, so um, Victor Mertz came uh, from Paris. So Victor is. Uh, the uh, founder of Bitcoinomy.fr, which is a, a blog that I sometimes contribute to. Um, <clears throat> and so he gave a talk, uh, kind of giving the, uh, you know, a picture of Bitcoin in France, where things are, what things look like now and where things are going in terms of, uh, you know, startups, um, different associations that are being created, uh, like uh, the uh, French Bitcoin Association, for instance, and um, also kind of um, showed us who are the you know, main people involved in Bitcoin in France. He also talked about payment systems because he works for uh, Paymium. And then we had another talk uh, by a guy named Benoit Boutry. Uh, he's a he's a head of IT at a bank, and uh, he wants to get involved with uh, helping merchants accept Bitcoin. So he gave a talk about uh, the importance that uh, merchants will play in Bitcoin adoption. And then I gave a talk about uh, Mt. Gox, to kind of try to put together all the elements, uh, all the information that we've learned in the past few weeks about Mark Carpellis and the apparent hacks and uh, negligence on his part in terms of security. So that, that was uh, really interesting in terms of um, research because there's just so much information out there that, that we're learning about this guy. But, I mean, information that was uh, already available on the Internet, on his blog, Twitter, uh, whatever, social media he uh, 
he's been uh, active on in the last few years. It's just uh, astonishing to me that none of this ever came out before. Um, and yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people there. I mean, most people there didn't really know about any of it. I mean, uh, some of, some people at the meetup didn't even know that he was French to begin with. So, yeah, I, we we've talked about this topic a few times, but I think you you've done even much more research into it. So maybe if we compare to where we talked last week, what's what's kind of the main things you've learned since then, or that's come out? Well. I guess the main thing that came out this week and what kind of uh, alerted the Bitcoin community a little bit, but it, we have to kind of take it with a grain of salt, is that uh, apparently, um, so that the Mt. Gox has apparently been hacked once or several times, so this is something we've ca- we've talked about. And apparently some hackers have uh, been able to gain access and extract all of the customer's information, so um, their email addresses, personal information, any personal information that they would have input into the site, but also their passports. And so this week... uh, And and I guess what would be interesting too is if they have trading balances and, you know, they would know how much, how many Bitcoins people have. Right, so the trading balances also. Now... So mind you, this was posted on um, on Pastebin. So somebody on Pastebin uh, posted this and then posted it on on, uh, on Reddit, and, and essentially saying we have all of the information of the customer's information. Um, we've already sold twenty percent of that information to um, to clients, and I'm using air quotes, but uh, by clients we mean organized criminals, and. We're getting ready to sell the rest of it. Now, if you would like to have your name removed from your, your information removed from it, you can send us your you can send us your email address. So they had published an email address. So they're saying you can send us your email address and we will verify whether or not that address was already sold. So in that twenty percent. And if it hasn't then we will reply to you and you can send us 0.25 bitcoin to have it removed from uh well no you can yeah you can send us 0.25 bitcoin to have it removed but not uh so the the process of elimination that they're using doesn't certify that your your data is actually in that other 80% right they're just telling you whether that your name was in the 20% that they already sent well, if they're on, I mean, who knows, right? right. They, so, they could, t- they might, maybe they already sold it, but they're still going to charge you, or yeah, they will charge bullshit. you and they'll still <laughs> sell it. It's, it's like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, anybody, including myself or any of you, could have just went on also on Pastebin and posted this completely, you know, fabricated uh, yeah. post, right? So nobody knows if, if this is true. I guess the question is for people who, uh, people like myself, who had an account at Mt. Gox, but didn't, I didn't, I never used them. Thing is, I don't remember if I sent them my passport or not. You know, I, I don't remember if I, if I verified or not with them. So it, I was a little kind of uh, uneasy about that when I, when I learned about it. But then I, I you know, reading the Reddit posts uh, afterwards, the people responding to this, basically saying that, well, this was most likely fake or made up. Yeah, is there, is there any, 
I mean, I haven't been looking at this that closely, but have there been any uh, information actually revealed to prove that they are holding some of these accounts, or is it just the pastebin post? So apparently, there has been. Uh, I I've seen. I haven't seen any actually, but I, I've read about people uh, having. Um, said that their information had been revealed and sort of, you know, they uh, had apparently um, revealed some information to prove that they did have, in fact, some uh, client data. But uh, And and yeah. then another thing was, wasn't that they, they posted some uh, files that they said there was the Mt. Cox code, I think, and then there was actually big concealing malware in that. Yeah. Did you hear? Yeah, I so see that. that. Yeah, yeah. I I was very close. I mean, when when these things appear on Reddit, you sort of uh, automatically start clicking through. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, you know what? If I had all of that data, even if I had the real stuff, I probably would not be posting it on Reddit. Um, and then yeah. I realized that actually, there's um, it's not it's not a hundred percent sure that that is that that's true data anyway. So. Um, they, they were saying that it shows that um, Mount Gox is actually solvent and Mark is holding off the coins and stealing it and all this stuff. And I think that, I mean, from my perspective, the evidence is just completely inconclusive. Uh, right. uh, so there's, I mean, that snapshot could have been taken at any moment and it could have been what Mount Gox believed was true and yeah. actually wasn't true. Or, you know, there's, there's various different plays that, that, that could have been, a, that, that, that could have explained that. So just one little in- interesting bit of information about this. Uh, maybe a coincidence, maybe not. So Mark Carpellas had a blog. His blog was blog.magicaltux.net. He's been posting on there since 2006. Originally in French, but then uh, later on, later on, he started posting in English. He hadn't written anything on his blog for at least a year or two, and so in 2010, he wrote an article about how he was. So he's basically um, uh, explaining how he would like to write a, uh, an SSH protocol in PHP. Okay, so Mark Carpella is notoriously known for having uh, uh, rewritten the Bitcoin uh, wallet implementation on Mt. Gox in PHP. Apparently, wanted to try to write SSH in PHP, which I mean is just like blatantly stupid if you're thinking about it from a, just a security standpoint. Like, I'm not a uh, security expert by any means, but I do. Know, I mean, I know that PHP is not made for this kind of thing. PHP is made for making websites. And, and and rewriting standards right. is okay. So dumb idea anyway. So he he posted this article uh, where he explains how he would do it, and, it, and people obviously commented. And in the comments, there's one guy who says that um, he says congratulations, you've made the least secure implementation implementation ever. Uh, what about these vulnerabilities that you'd be exposing yourself to? And so this commenter, his name is Nanashi. And then Mark responds to him, uh, basically um, just discarding his uh, his remarks. And so the interesting uh, coincidence is that the the guy, the person who posted this on uh, this information about uh, people's personal data, 
on Pacemen was also nicknamed Nanashi. So is there a, a link there? Is that the same person that uh, was tipped off in 2010 about this potential vulnerability? And I guess the question is, I mean, this doesn't prove that Mt. Gox did have an, a PHP SSH implementation, but it certainly does hint at the l- complete l- lack of professionalism in terms of security at Mt. Gox and, and the arrogance of Mark Carpellis to think that you know, he's some sort of genius programmer and that he can rewrite SSH and PHP. <laughs> and from what I've, from what I've read and the, the, the picture that I was able to kind of paint of this guy and his, his character and, and his personality is that I think that he's somebody who's extremely arrogant for one, um, and has complete uh, kind of arrogant and narcissistic. I mean, because if you read this blog, I mean, yeah, and and that he might actually think that this is a good idea and try to pull it off and uh, have it blow up in his face. Yeah, and and completely overestimates his technical skills. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So, so one, I mean, just to um, just the the thing that's interested me most about this Mount Gox story is is the um, is the news this week that came out that um, the bank, the Japanese bank uh, Mizuhu, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that properly. I hope I, I hope I pronounced it okay. Um, it has has also been kind of folded into the complaint in the U.S. Um, the legal complaint against against Mount Gox. Um, and just wondering what what we think about um, that relationship and what that means, not just for Mount Gox and and the people who own bitcoins on Mount Gox, but for exchanges more generally. Yeah, yeah I I saw the article. I mean, you sent it to me, and I saw in the suit against the bank they said you know the bank was uh, profiting from fraud and so basically complicit in Mount Gox's fraud um, I, I don't know anything about the legal side you know whether this is any chance whether them suing in the US versus Japan makes sense so I don't know anything about that As, but I, I can certainly I, I guess one thing that follows from that is that, or one thing that explains as well a bit is the hesitation a lot of banks feel towards working with Bitcoin businesses because something they don't quite understand and they think like, oh, what, what kind of liabilities can bring get us, us? Yeah, I mean, I think it has. I think it has. Um, uh, I saw Jeff Garzik on Twitter yesterday, kind of sighing with uh, <laughs> being quite annoyed that this bank had been sort of brought into this case but I think I've um, we've sort of seen for a long time the hesitancy of banks to to back Bitcoin businesses and I mean this is a case where actually to get a full banking license and to have um, that kind of support maybe there does need to be regulation and sort of um, liability placed on the exchanges uh, so I think there's uh, the lessons learned out of Gox uh, obviously come from a security perspective, mainly for the other exchanges, but also in terms of managing banking relationships and ensuring that you know that the the exchange takes takes liability where it needs to to to, to avoid this kind of um, this kind of mess that that Mount Gox yeah. is in. 
I mean, I think it, I don't know about the regulatory situation in Japan. From what I understand, Mount Gox wasn't really regulated there in any way. But uh, if you look, for example, at Germany, but I think at other countries too, uh, operating a Bitcoin exchange, you know, is a financial service, so you do have to get regulated. And when you do that, I think the way that usually works is you work with a bank. And then the bank, of course, basically provides their license for you and there will be some kind of contract. And that means there may even be an integration into the internal auditing system of the bank. So they will be tightly integrated and they will certainly be liable. Yeah, interesting. So that, that would be like the, the Fidel Bank in Germany. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So they, I think that works like that there. Uh, but maybe it was different for Mt. Gox because they were didn't have to get regulated, so perhaps they only had a bank account. Right, right. So th- this would be, yeah, the the model that the Fido and who, who banks with Fido, Kraken and Bitcoin yeah, D. Kraken. Um, yeah, Kraken. Yeah, those two. That's right. Those two. Yeah. So they 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 must have um, they sort of have like a much more integrated approach with the bank and therefore um it's more it's more likely that there won't be a complete mess if anything goes wrong right um, no this would not have happened I, I yeah no there's no I, way this this magnitude I, I don't think there's any way this could have happened in, in such a constellation yeah i agree so the the thing that this kind of brings me on to is is the um the separation of exchanges from holding funds so in normal markets, in like the stock exchange and um, other, other asset markets, you have essentially an exchange which does the matching of trades. And then you have competition amongst people who fund accounts on the exchange. And um, there's different levels um, and competition introduced at, all of the, uh, uh, at, each, at each phase. So you don't have single point of failure. Um, and you have competition to encourage higher quality services for consumers and one thing that that immediately springs to mind for me is is well that should be the that might be the next phase of of bitcoin exchanges um what do you what do you guys think about that so how does how does that work really for the stock market so you have the exchange which like you said matches uh buyers and sellers but then you have different levels of of, of services under that, uh, which deal yeah, with the actual holding of funds and such? Yeah, so like you you have, say for example, I'm trying to trade on the stock exchange, well, I'll have an account with a bank that I choose out of all the banks Yeah, um, that can be, um, I think they call them, um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, either primary primary accounts yeah. on the exchange, but basically they're going to input trades into the exchange on my behalf. Um, yeah. But I don't rely on the exchange to have funding, and the bank net settles with other banks who are on the, on the exchange. I see. So if, I, yeah, if, I'm, buying, if I'm buying shares, then, then I'm buying shares from another bank, and there'll be like a net settlement that will happen between the banks, and I'll have, um, I'll have shares to my name. And, but it's That's- not... It's not. Yeah. It's not the. It's not having everything under one roof. In which case, you know, there's huge 
risk uh, of failure and embezzlement and lots of lots of the things that we yeah don't want. I I, th- I think this is really interesting. I, I my f- I've never thought about this, but my my kind of first response to that is that the reason probably why you have that is also because of the complexity of our financial system on, on you're selling stocks and you know who's the custodian of the stock how do you deal with dividends all those things the voting rights this is such a, a complex mess whereas bitcoin is so simple i i find it hard i find it very hard to imagine how that will work with bitcoin yeah i, I agree I, with you brian where I think that uh, a lot of people, I think, from the kind of more traditional – so just as a disclaimer, I'm not an economist and I know very little about (laughs) financial systems. So this is where I'm kind of out to the side from both of you who study economics. Uh, Yeah, so the the financial system is extremely complicated, like you say, and and, and Bitcoin is something that's very simple and and, – I don't think that we need to go towards a model where – uh, things are complicated and complex, and f- so what you're saying, Jonathan, uh, where you have different levels of uh, of service providers, to me that just sounds like more fees and uh, yeah. more more tax on the on the Bitcoin user and somebody who just wants to buy Bitcoin from an exchange. I mean, I I would think that where this is going, uh, and there's definitely evidence for that. For example, we interviewed um, Thomas Bloomer, and he's working on, I mean, I think he's built an exchange that uses multi-signature addresses. So in that case, I don't know exactly how it works, but in that case, the exchange basically cannot steal your money. And uh, I know also in the, the recent hackathon we had here, one guy built a project which was basically a decentralized cross-currency exchange that also with multi-signature addresses and that's kind of semi-trustless. So I guess you could get robbed, but you would need to have the exchange being corrupt and the other party being corrupt. Just the exchange is not enough. So I think it's probably more going towards that and like leveraging multi-signature to make it secure. Yeah, so you need to find someone that you um, essentially you trust um, to hold that other signatory power. But the problem the problem with that is, yeah, you can have collusion between the um, between the exchange and the uh, that that third signature. True, but that's a lot more difficult than yeah. No, the- true, hundred percent. The the only the only issue also is then, well. Are we are we moving to a situation where um, funds in and out go slower? I mean, there's lots of trade offs that kind of become get, be yeah that you expose when you start when you start upping this security. So I agree that like the single the single exchange where everything's under one roof and we've got a um, yeah, and you've got a trade engine that, that you've got a really secure way of storing the bitcoins on the exchange. That's like an ideal scenario because you don't have any of these frictions. When you start introducing multi-sig, well, then you've got a problem where um, I'm not going to be able to take out bitcoins very easily. Um, yeah, or, or, I, I, 
Well, no, yeah. hold on. Because I sign it and then the exchange signs it and I get my coins. Is that that's how it works, right? I'm honestly not exactly sure how it's being implemented there. So um, I don't know. But I think it's a good topic to read about and come back to. Uh, I know they are doing. So the first one is called Bitcoin Bullion. So this is actually a, a gold back of Bitcoin Bullions. And this is uh, built on the technology that was, oh, uh, that was developed by Thomas Blumer. And um, he's a bits of proof guy. And so that's, a, I think, um, a gold Bitcoin exchange. And the gold is with some third party custodian. So that's, of course, you rely on the trust. But I think for the Bitcoin side, Bitcoin balance is on there. They use multi-sig and the idea there is that the exchange can't steal it. But I, I don't know exa- about the exact implementation. But yeah, we should read about this and come back to it. I, I just want to add something. So, of course, we need to have uh, uh, systems and processes in place and uh, transparency and accountability to the exchanges you know, so that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. But most people... I think, who are in the Bitcoin community. And this is not to say that this would protect us. <laughs> Most people who work in the Bitcoin community and have exchanges and businesses around Bitcoin are honest people. There, there, there's, the, there's, a, uh, there's one thing that we have to remember is that Mark Carpellis was a dishonest guy who had been involved with in, in payment fraud before, who had been involved in very kind of shady uh, deals uh, and just a, a, a toxic person is what I, is how I'd like to describe him in, in the Bitcoin community. So remove that, and then I think you have people that are honest. And of course, we need to have this kind of uh, transparency and uh, trust systems and multi-signature and what have you. But let's just kind of uh, remember that this guy couldn't be trusted. We shouldn't we shouldn't have trusted him, and all the signs were pointed to that. Yeah, uh, anybody that, who would have read his blog before all of this would have said, "Whoa, yeah. I'm not putting my money in this company." Now, just I wanted to talk about because um, we talk, spoke about re- regulation. I want to get your idea on this, uh, Jonathan. So, I don't think that uh, exchange that we need to add, you know, many layers of regulation for exchanges. I think that there are some things that need to be done in terms of regulation, but I think that the Bitcoin ecosystem is capable of self-regulating. Because because it's based on the principle of, of transparency. I mean, the Bitcoin protocol itself is based on the principle of transparency and openness. And if Bitcoin exchanges hold themselves to a level of transparency and accountability about their processes and how things are handled uh, in the back end of their business, I think that at some point we'll be able to uh, even perhaps have some sort of a label, right? So a, a label of trust where you know these are the commandments – that exchanges have to uh, live by, and these are the um, ideals and principles, and these are the security implementations that they'll have to put in. These are the commandments. This is the, this is the, the the label that defines an exchange as being trustworthy and uh, safe, and where we can keep our money. And um, and so that authority would then give that label to the exchange or to exchanges or Bitcoin companies that abide by those rules. What do you think about that kind of uh, scenario? Yeah, I mean, from the security perspective, 
standards are definitely the way to go, and the, um, the there shouldn't be any heavy sort of regulation, dr- dr- like draconian regulation on on the security front. Um, I I do think though, uh, and so the the trustworthiness of exchanges, I think, will continue to be. Um, largely uh, down to the individual. Um, but the, I mean, from the beginning, you, you, we've got to understand, the way that I think about Bitcoin is that uh, the transactions are irreversible. Possession is everything. So when stuff goes wrong, stuff goes really wrong because you can't, you can't claim, claw back any any claims that go that go missing. So, the consumer protection for for individuals is really important to get right. Now, the security of the exchange is not something that's going to get regulated. There probably will be. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I think the exchanges should be responsible for their coins and liable for their coins. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to store coins, then I think the model of having like insured storage, like Elliptic or like this this startup this week, Zappo, uh, that received funding, I think that that's a, a pretty interesting solution for for exchanges because it's just you know people people don't make good decisions. We saw it with Mt. Gox. There's yeah. not enough information out there to make a really solid decision about the. The, the security procedures of Mt. Gox. There were plenty of people, Eric Voorhees, who uh, is built Coinopol, had coins in Mt. Gox. And, you know, that, I mean, he says now that I should never have had coins in there. Well, actually, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of people less technical than him that are getting involved in Bitcoin and they should be protected. Yeah. So I think, I think standards is really important and, um, that's something that, that that will be there. I think the, the liability issue um, might might also play a role here. Um, further to that, I mean, the, I think there will be some some AML KYC uh, type regulation that, that that will need to be had on the on the on the blockchain. And I think one one kind on of on the blockchain. What do you mean with that? Sorry, um, basically that um, parts of the. I think that some of the coins, the, the funding of accounts um, with Bitcoin in, in the regulated economies will probably, that they will have to do sort of AML on the blockchain uh, where they're going to start looking at where the coins have come from. And that, they, you mean as in if someone wants to deposit coins in an exchange, they have to do you know, KYC first, creating accounts and in a passport, etc. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean they have to prove the origin of the coin? So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how this looks um, going forward. But, I mean, I would have thought that, the, I mean, the KYC is obvious. Um, the AML procedure, where we're going to start talking about money laundering, well, that's going to have to have... There's going to have to be some intricate Bitcoin uh, knowledge sort of employed here because, I mean, we don't we don't want a situation where lots of lots of what we would 
say say for example, we can all we can all say that the people that hacked Mount if, if Mount Gox was hacked and the sto- and the coins were stolen, then uh, can we say that we don't really want those coins to be spent by those people? Yeah, um, and we can say that. And, and then now I know, like I mean, I know the ethos of uh, of bitcoin but the the point is that when you're running a legitimate business you can't have those coins go through and i'm not saying anyone knows where they are but the the there will have to be some procedures in place to try and um understand the origin of coins um, i think that's very problematic though i'm i I've, i'm certainly see where you're coming from and it is true that it's worrying if you think about it that some hacker stole 750,000 bitcoins and you think of like let's say bitcoin really lifts up to the potential that we see and they are going to be worth i don't know a hundred thousand dollars at one point or something like that and then a bunch of criminals you know assuming that a bunch of criminals have these enormous amount of wealth that's very worrying i agree uh, but the problem, of course, with, is if you start looking at the origin of a coin, is that the fungibility is is threatened, and I think that's extremely dangerous. So my hope is actually more that people will develop uh, anonymity tools, whether it's like CoinJoin or Dark Wallet or maybe things that come afterwards, that will make this impossible. Because I think it's very threatening. It's a big danger if if people start doing this. No, of course, any country can come in and say, like, you know, we're not going to let these people spend their coins because we're not in agreement with their political views or what have you. Know, we can get into that kind of scenario. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, then you can start saying, like, oh, but no, they they came from WikiLeaks or like yeah, it's. Or no, uh, yeah, yeah, I complete I completely agree that it's very worrying. But I think from the practical point of view of if I'm sitting there as a financial regulator and I'm applying certain rules to banks and I'm saying that you need to verify sources of you, you need to know about sources of funds for these types of transactions. I, I see them enforcing some sort of law. I mean, once they get their head around how Bitcoin works, which, which is going to take a while. But like I see them having these kind of qualms and i'm saying yeah i agree that coin join is very well is important to protect user privacy and um and stuff like that but but you could see a situation where um there will be an attempt to um yeah i agree to, no to, i i to, I, I do agree i think these attempts will come and and it's certainly a debate that that we'll, we'll come back to i think we actually talked about it once before you know when there was this coin Taint idea in by this American, what was it called again? Um, taint analysis stuff. No, they wanted to like white label coins and uh, anyway. But you know, the people have had that idea, and I, I agree. I think it's a debate we'll have, and people will try things like that. I mean, I think it's a debate for. I mean, it's one of. I think it's one of the trickiest. One of the trickiest questions facing Bitcoin, if, if it goes legitimate in terms of in the eyes of regulation. So, I mean, obviously, these issues don't even apply. If, if Bitcoin, say, is a, is a political project um, that tries to subvert these powers and um, continues to like protect users who don't want to be 
uh, oppressed by governments, then you know, like this isn't this isn't an issue. But when it comes to like trying to integrate itself into the existing financial system, then it's going to answer these t- these tough questions, which are, well, should a coin mixing service be allowed? It, yeah, I mean. Th- you know that, that's gonna that's gonna come along, and and some players are gonna say, well, yeah, let's ban let's ban, let's ban coin mixing, which makes everything completely. But, I mean, my my thinking on this point is actually that if Bitcoin is to be a very successful payment system, etc., you know, uh, replace the credit cards or uh, on that kind of level, then uh, what's really crucial is transaction costs. And when you start doing these things, the transaction cost, it's just, it gets so much more complicated. I don't think the transaction costs can stay that low if we go in directions like that. So I think the only way actually for Bitcoin to be a really, really powerful uh, payment system, a system of moving value around is if you do not have to care where the coin came from. And for that, we do need fungibility. And for that, I think the only way to do that is because people will try to track it or do certain things like whitelisting or redlisting. Or so, I think the only way to do that is if if you actually build tools that mess this analysis up completely. So that's my that's my thinking on this. But yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting area and one that's going to be a lot of debate will be centered around it in the next years. Yeah, so, I agree. I, 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 t- I tend to think that we need to have as little um, layers of of regulation and control. I mean, obviously, there's customer uh, consumer protection questions that uh, that arise and that need to be dealt with. But you know, I was talking to a, a merchant here in Lille yesterday and trying to explain to her the advantage of Bitcoin and. and um, for for her, you know, one percent uh, transaction fee on a credit card uh, or a bank card transaction is is high, one percent. So, as soon as we start getting into you know, talking about like half a percent of of the of the transaction fee or even less, like it loses all of its of of its interesting aspects for merchants, and you know, they're the ones that are going to be um, making adoption move forward, right? But, but I don't think that's true in general. Like in general, one percent is extremely low for credit card fees. I was also in the. I know you mentioned this before, so I guess there's exceptions and there's quite a, a range. But there was a, and we'll come back to this briefly as well. But there was this report by Goldman Sachs this week, and they actually did an analysis of you know all the. All the payment, all the transactions are made, and the transaction costs and the average transaction costs, and uh, it is something like two point seven percent. So, uh, you know, there, if you talk about half a percent, that is very significant. I think it's actually. I think I remember it was two point seven percent on average for retail, and like three percent online. I remember correct, but in in that ballpark at least. I mean, uh, Brian, you make a very, you you make you you make a good point about about the about the numbers, um, and I agree that transaction costs need to be very very low in order to um, ensure Bitcoin's viability as a as a payment as a as a medium of exchange. Really, um, the way 
the way that um, I see, I see that going in. It's a completely different method, though, from uh, credit cards, because the way that you have to think about it is that credit cards you pull information, um, so that you you give someone all your data, and then it's a pull request from the merchant acquirer that pulls the funds into the merchant's account. Now, Bitcoin's a push system, so I, the owner of the coins, sign a transaction to give it to the merchant. Now, that's a completely different model of payment to what we usually see in the payment space. So that's a, a, I think the competition that Bitcoin faces is not just on a fee basis, but on literally like the mechanism by which the payment is made. So there's a couple of new, um, there's a couple of new systems that are doing more push um, type payments in Europe, uh, and it will be interesting to see what fee structure they use. Uh, but also, just that—that's the kind of thing that's going to compete. Because um, if you think about it, credit cards are a way for people to spend money they don't have in that moment. Um, that is—that's what credit's all about. It's about giving someone the ability to spend money when they don't have well, it on. Well, it's both, right? I mean, it's—it's a, it's a lending thing and it's a payment system. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But but the point is that, and by um, credit cards we also include debit cards, right? So it's not only a credit system. Yeah, but but what I'm saying is that like the credit system, just I don't I don't see it directly competing with Bitcoin because you, you can't replace you can't replace uh, credit cards with Bitcoin because no, that's completely true. The lending function no one's done with Bitcoin, and uh, maybe someone will try, but uh, that's that's completely different. I agree. I mean. It's only on the payment system side that Bitcoin competes. Yeah, exactly. But, but in that way, I mean, it, it's not... Yeah. In that way, you have to think about it competing with debit cards. Like, credit cards, for me, is just like a non... It's a red herring to, to compare the two. It's, it's apples and pears because, like, if I'm a credit card company, I need to assess your credit worthiness. Now, if I'm going to set up a Bitcoin credit company, I'm going to have to do the same thing. Because you don't, by definition, you don't have those funds in your account to pay the, to pay the bill. Yeah, no, I think I think I mean, yeah. When, yeah. When, I, when I talk about you know using Bitcoin, uh, uh, <laughs> this merchant, for instance, I was talking about a, a while ago. I'm talking about debit cards. Debit cards, yeah, yeah. Which so I mean, depending on the country, uh, like I don't know how it is in the UK, but in France, like I have a debit card, but it's a it's a Visa debit card, right? So it's. Uh, still yeah, using exactly. the Visa backend. I know that's not the, the, the case. Visa payment network. Yeah, I, that's I know right. it's not necessarily the case in the U.S. or Canada, but in a lot of countries where chip cards have been implemented as the standard, Visa and Mastercard are the issuer of the card, right? Yeah, but the point, yeah. the, the, the thing is that Visa charge differently for credit and debit. Absolutely. You have to know that. So, like in the UK, a debit a debit card transaction. Even on like the Visa network, costs about sixteen p. Mm-hmm. So it's very cheap to pay with uh, to pay with debit. Now Bitcoin has to actually go in between, and also not only in between, but like it, it is it is better the debit because of like the the, the settlements, um, and it is a push. Still, debit is somewhat of a pull. Is it? It's a Half, halfway house between a push and a pull, but the 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 Bitcoin is a new uh, like method of payment, and I don't know whether it's actually going to be long term be able to compete on price with with 
with some of these uh, with some of the debit type systems. The credit systems is a, is a different ballgame. Yeah, that's something that's kind of that's, interesting because I mean, here in France, credit cards are virtually non-existent. So in, in France, I mean, I, I'm from Canada. I, I had three credit cards when I was 20. So I, I know that that kind of system based on credit and where you need a credit card to be able to make online tr- purchases and such. In France, um, credit cards like unless you get an American Express card. Uh, which are very expensive to get your hands on uh, and are used mostly for traveling expenses and such by you know people who work for large companies like credit cards don't exist so you have a debit card with your bank and that but that debit card has uh, is essentially a visa that you can use to make online transactions or purchase in stores with right. a chip on it um but so those the I guess so it, what I'm, what I meant to say by that is that you know different markets or uh, different countries will have different um, ways of, uh, of going about it. Yeah. Yeah. One, one, one kind of like thing to just sort of throw out there is that this is something that I think a lot about, but the, there's a huge disparity across the world between different countries, as you say, um, in not only like the holding of, of debit and credit, but also just like the overall cost of the payment system varies so much between countries. Um, I'll give you an example. So the, um, the, the cost, the social cost of a payment system, of the retail payment system uh, in, uh, I think it's uh, in Norway, is like 0. Um, well, it, it differs between debit, credit and, and stuff like that, but like it's like 1% of GDP. So there's huge ability for us to like reduce that burden on society, and I think Bitcoin gives us a really interesting solution to that to that problem. Now, it has to be said that like some elements of the payment system, like debit cards and in some cases cash, are quite efficient means of payment, and it's about finding like the exact position for 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 a Bitcoin type technology. Um, to or Bitcoin itself to 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 really uh, disrupt this, um, but I don't see it as like it's definitely not a, a one a, a, a silver for me at least it's not a silver bullet at this point. That's it. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think it's uh, there are some ways of thinking there that I I haven't. I, I'm, I tend to be very convinced by Bitcoin, and I tend to not see credit card companies. Or those existing payment networks as much of a competition at all, but perhaps that's uh, that's wrong. But uh, let's move on to the next topic because we, we have a, a few more things to cover, and um, we're already quite a bit in. So uh, perhaps we can very briefly talk about the VC round, Sapo. Uh, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. There. Um, a San Francisco-based company, and they're building a web wallet that also has a kind of an insured component to it. So the way they think about it is is a split between, let's say, a checking account and a savings account. So the savings account would be insured, and it's some sort of cold storage thing. Judging from the website, it's in a forest. Uh, but they don't officially disclose it. <laughs> well, no, they yeah they did. They have come out and said that, that some of the storages are in like mountainous caves. I think. 
Exactly. Yeah, there is like snowy trees on there, so I, I don't know if somebody will be able to figure out according to the constellation of the tree where that where it is. <laughs> um, I, I think it's geographically dispersed as well. Yes. Yeah, it is. I was reading about it earlier, and it is geographically dispersed. Yeah. 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 Perhaps several forests, but uh, it's <laughs> it's it, what's interesting here because we've talked about this before. But there's a, a competitor in the UK named Elliptic that's doing essentially the exact same thing, and uh, this uh, Zappo company claims to that they do this for zero point one two percent. So the cold storage, uh, that's the fee you pay every year. Uh, for the insurance and of course that's very cheap and then you compare that to elliptic where it's two percent yearly which is not that cheap so that's interesting yeah, there was some debate about whether that's actually true on reddit some people uh, claim that they are in they know the company they know people who work there and they said that the insurance coverage is actually not covering the all the assets Although the company then came back and says it does, so we don't know. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting story, and I, I think it's a it's a valuable service. But uh, what are your thoughts on this? I think that uh, Elliptic and Zappo try to target a very different clientele. Uh, I think Elliptic Vault is uh, geared mostly towards you know, large companies with large Bitcoin holdings or individuals with large Bitcoin holdings, whereas Zappo seems to be much more consumer-oriented. They, they have a, a, uh, a wallet. I don't, know if, I don't know if that's true because Zappo, uh, supposedly, they've been operating for two years already and they already have which seems kind of crazy in Bitcoin times, no two years. Uh, and they have, they are storing uh, large amounts of funds for institutional investors, hedge funds, etc. Mm-hmm. So I've, at least from what I've read is that service was actually built for professional investors and now they're, Kind, yeah, of kind of adding adding this consumer layer on top. Yeah, but, I but think it's that's true interesting that, though, because mm. you know where elliptic uh, really is will continue focusing on that kind of higher end clientele. Um, Zappo is trying to get into the consumer market and try to sensibilize people as to you know what are some of the um, best practices for storing Bitcoin and. This is, you know, this comes back to the problem that we've been talking about so much: is uh, people being able to store their bitcoins in a place that's safe and where they can trust that that money will will be there when they need it, and at a at a price that's reasonable, right? So yeah, I, I think yeah. This, I think this is very interesting, and it does a lot to try to promote uh, the use of Bitcoin among consumers, and kind of gives them a tool where uh, they can do that. And what's interesting too, I, I wanted to point out, uh, they've got a, a a web wallet, which is really cool, and it takes about twenty seconds to create. So for iPhone users, I think this is a good wallet solution uh, for a day to day wallet. Yeah, I, 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 I haven't I haven't actually used it myself, but I've heard that it's a, a really nice um, really nice wallet. Yeah, it's super easy to use, and I mean, I, I yeah, just design is very nice. Yeah. Um, one 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 thing, I mean, just as a point of interest about the the setup of these companies is that the company insures 
the vault as a whole. So it's not the individual holdings of, um, like they don't set up a separate insurance policy for each um, individual holding of Bitcoin. Um, the company itself is insured of all the, ho- of all the um, for its whole vault. Uh, let's assume that it is uh, insured for its whole vault. Um, and that means that there's some, uh, there's some diversification risk here for the insurer because if someone manages to get in, if they've managed, if Zappo has managed, or Elliptic for that matter, has managed to somehow um, separate these keys um, of, of individual users, you might be able to get some sort of diversification risk. If, if you can prove that a hack would not take the whole cold wallet out of... Yeah. What, what do you mean by it. diversification risk? So, so the point is that when, when someone insures something, um, if, if there's a, like, a single risk... So, so if, if they kept all the cold storage on one piece of paper in a vault somewhere... If that's Mark Carpella style. Yeah. <laughs> if that's gone, then the whole thing's gone, right? You've, right. Got, a single, you've got a single risk. If they manage to like sort of separate lots of lots of these things across different locations where a single a single hack would not take all of the all of the cold wallet then there's you, you know you, you've got a little bit of diversification on the insurer side and you might be able to get a slightly better a slightly better deal yeah now, so, yeah okay so that's a good thing then yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly how that works. I, I'm friendly with the guys who run Elliptic, and uh, they. Um, I mean, they're very, very solid. They all have PhDs from Cambridge in computer science and maths, and um, where, whereas the yeah, and they uh, they've they're looking at lots of um, they their two percent offering at the moment is very, very competitive from their point of view. Um. I personally find it expensive. That uh, I, you know, I was because I'm working on these investment workshops. So one area that I was thinking a lot about is security. So what do you tell people, like so people who are not familiar investing in Bitcoin, um, where do you put your bitcoins? And because uh, obviously telling them, well, you know, uh, set up separate operating system with Linux and then install Armory, etc. I think this is just beyond the technical capabilities for most people. But then I, f- I personally feel 2% is just pretty hefty. I think that's, uh, it's, it's sort of, uh, but I guess it depends, right? I mean, if they get stolen, then, uh, if that's the alternative, of course, two percent is very attractive. But yeah, I, I think it's also something that's going to come down, no? Because it just scales amazingly. The costs are probably going to be pretty much flat. I mean, insurance, of course, scales with the with um, with the, with the amount of, of the, holdings. Yeah. But still, I, I mean, I presume this is going to come down dramatically. Also, when insurance companies are better able to assess the risk, maybe they have like practices that they tell these companies to implement that they're very sure that they're secure. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree. I think the from from what I've heard, and I, I don't know, I don't know how how true this is, but I think that much of the 2% cost is actually the insurance cost. Yeah. The vast it, majority. And, and that is 
and yeah, that's that's something that does scale with the size of the holding. So um, maybe Example's got a different business model. I mean, maybe Elliptic uh, makes their money on on kind of you know some margins. Uh, that's that's a good point. So because I was actually a business model where they're making their money. I was cars. yeah, I was actually reading in the Reddit response that they have some sort of Bitcoin reserve that I think are funds that actually in possession of the Zappos or Xapo, um, which would then be used to cover, I guess, potential losses. Of course, if they have something like that, then it might help them to get an insurance just for the excess. So that might be much, much cheaper. Um. But I, think it's an, I think it's an interesting space that, that we should continue watching. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use it. Uh, maybe not to put all of my Bitcoin holdings, but I, I think I'm going to use it for a little while and see how uh, you know how easy it is to use the vault. One, one thing that I like about it, you know, I mean, not to keep con- comparing it to Elliptic, is that you know, when you get to Elliptic, you've got a Elliptic Vault application form where you got to fill in all your personal details, security questions, submit an application, which then will get verified. And, and whereas Zappos really seems to be quite simple. I mean, you've got your vault address, and then if you want to retrieve your balance, there's th- you know certain security um, steps that you have to go through. And the uh, I, I guess from a user experience designer's point of view, this um, service is really I think geared towards ease of use and uh, potentially, just you know, regular people, regular consumers that want to buy and hold some Bitcoin, maybe uh, you know, a few thousand dollars worth or something like that, at, at a price that's reasonable. Now, I guess the question is: Are they uh, trustworthy? Uh, are they really insured? You know, the, there's this Reddit post that claims that they don't have any insurance, uh, but then uh, some people kind of came back on that and, and said that, in fact, some people that supposedly work for Zappo. Um, so I'm, I'm actually speaking on a panel with Wences, uh, on uh, at Coin Summit. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him some, some of those questions. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Would cool. you come back and uh, give us a recap after you come back from Coin Summit? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. That'd be awesome. Well, let's... Uh, do we want to do some update on the Satoshi, Dorian Satoshi story? Yeah, so I can, I, it kind of feeds into a little bit of what we were talking about earlier with coin joins, right? Like, the, I, I was sitting, um, for a completely different reason, sifting through some of the early, the early blocks on the blockchain, um, looking at, I was particularly interested in, well, were people consolidating coins into a single address? Um, because I've done some, I've done some work in the part in the past um, on the um, distribution of coins and uh, the the sort of concentration of coins in particular addresses. So I was interested to see well what was the behaviour in the beginning of the blockchain, and I sort of stumbled upon uh, an address that I saw, which was used on the sixteenth of January two thousand and nine. Um, which was only 13 days after the beginning of the blockchain. And I saw that the last payment that it made was to the Dorian Nakamoto fund started by Andreas. So I started thinking, well, 
and then I looked at the coins that were that were spent uh, that, that were used in the 16th of January transaction, and they were even they were mined on the 13th, so 10 days after the beginning of Bitcoin. Um, and I thought uh, at that time I thought there were only two people uh, on the blockchain. Uh, I thought there was Hal Finney and Satoshi, um, and I looked through Hal Finney's stuff and. He said that he wasn't active in 2010, and yet this wallet had been used in 2010. So I started getting the kind of affirmative bias that we all that we all have, and I said, <laughs> "Well, um, maybe this is Satoshi signing a transaction to reveal that he's not actually uh, Dorian." And it was like a really nice thing that I could trace, where um, traced all the way back to, to 2009. Now the address actually does belong to Dustin Trammell, who's a security researcher in Israel, and he's been accused multiple times of being Satoshi, or, or, or sort of confused with Satoshi in terms of um, owning the coins that, that people think are Satoshis. So it so, was him who donated? Yeah, so he donated. So I'm actually like really grateful <laughs> that he was, he was very generous with his donation. How much did he donate? He donated 0.25. Oh, okay, um, cool. Which, I, I mean, that's a... Uh, a nice sum of money, um, and so he um, essentially what this reveals is that this guy. I know the history of all of his past transactions on the blockchain, right? And the I was able to identify. Okay, so I didn't get the the name right, but I was in, I able to link the transaction, the donation to Dorian with a with a transaction back in two thousand and nine, and. The thing that this raises for me is, well, yeah, the ability, the ability to do that means that user user privacy, even for the most advanced people, um, is something that that should be looked at. I mean, why should I know that this guy, Dustin Trammell, uh, donated to the Dorian Fund, unless he was making some sort of public statement, which which maybe this is. So it, it just kind of raised. Um, although I got I got the the. <laughs> The, the, the end story wrong, it kind of reinforced in my mind the need to think quite carefully about user privacy in the blockchain. Yeah, it's an important topic. I agree. Um, so I've left, I've left the article up there on our, on our website um, with, with the correction that it's not, um, it's not Satoshi's coins, but um, just to show people that this type of analysis is possible, um, and I also left it up there so that Dustin Trammell, hopefully someday he'll be exonerated of <laughs> these type of articles coming out. <laughs> so yeah. I, I left a, left a trail for other researchers because I'm not the first person to fall into thinking that he, uh, he's the, the owner, or that Satoshi's the owner of one of his addresses. So is this part of your research? Uh, researching, uh, doing trend, uh, blockchain analysis? Yeah, so we're starting. We're starting to do that at Coinometrics. Um, we we've got a new site being built at the moment that we're going to push out that um, uh, will contain uh, lots of blockchain analysis. Uh, that's what I'm working on mostly at the at the moment when I'm working on Coinometrics stuff is uh, thinking about what what useful information is not being um, put out there at the moment on these block explorers. Um, and I think there's I, I mean. I think there's a lot more that can be done. I mean, I think that the first sort of evolution of block explorers was really great and it's useful to be able to go and check transactions. But in terms of presenting data and presenting 
information, I think there's a lot that can be improved. So at Coinometrics, we're sort of dedicated to um, to putting out the best cutting edge metrics and, and stats so that people can, you know, I think I think right now the block explorers are also, they're very techy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you, you've got to be familiar with the blockchain and uh, understand what's going on. And I, and I think the blockchain is actually really important for the, the, the next generation of users and, and even for like journalists and for people who are, who are trying to get an understanding of what's going on in Bitcoin. Um, and uh, we, we're sort of building tools so that people don't have to, don't have to uh, go through the minutiae of all the transactions and sort of present graphs and visual representations of the blockchain. Cool. Cool. I uh, just uh, donated yeah, to Satoshi's uh, fund there. If you guys, if you guys oh, want I, also I sti- donate. <laughs> I still haven't done it, but yeah, I want to. He's gotten quite a lot, no? Yeah, yeah he's got 44 uh, Bitcoin so far. Forty-four. Okay. So how much is that? It's uh, twenty-eight thousand dollars. Yeah, a bit more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, there is another topic we want to cover, and it's kind of a big topic. So perhaps we'll try to um, we'll try to do a good job of covering this complex topic in, in a reasonable time. This week there was a report by Goldman Sachs about Bitcoin. And now, I highly recommend people read it. It's uh, it's critical, but it's also intelligent and informative. It's 25 pages long, and I guess it's also a sign that the banks are really taking Bitcoin serious now. And it has interviews and um, submissions by about 10 different people. And two people mentioned uh, a similar thing, which was they brought up the question whether Bitcoin, how defensible Bitcoin is against altcoins. And I was asked, I gave a talk on Tuesday and I was asked the same thing. It's like, so, because we often talk that Bitcoin is limited and the inflation rate is limited. So, you know, only ever be 21 million. Now, what's going to happen if Bitcoin is going to become extremely successful, widely used? Uh, we generally assume that the Bitcoin price will be much, much higher and people talk of, you know, $100,000 or things like that. Um, but of course, the question is, what happens, what's the effect of that influx of altcoins? Can that cause a type of inflation rate for Bitcoin? Um, or could it at least perhaps a lesson that effect that uh, new adoption has on Bitcoin. And I guess on the one hand, I guess there's kind of two, two sides. On the one hand, you have the ease with which you can create new coins and you have their usability. And of course, you can kind of leverage the Bitcoin network and uh, use the same things because a, a lot of the tools that are being developed you know, whether they use uh, Bitcoin or Dogecoin or something, it doesn't make much of a difference. And on the other hand, you have the network effect. So you ask, like, how how much of an advantage is there to be one? And so I'm curious what what your thoughts are on this question. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's a it's a great question. It's something that I think I I thought about first, sort of a year ago, and then left it and sort of <laughs> concentrated on some other on some other aspects that I was thinking about and yeah I, I think it's I think it's really important to reassess this at this point and the 
the, the thinking of mine goes a little bit as follows. So the, the, the effect that we're talking about where the money supply kind of increases with, um, with these altcoins is only the case if there's substitutability between the different coins. So at the moment, I would say that the security of the Bitcoin network and the applications being built mean that, you know, there's not great substitution between Bitcoin and Litecoin from a use case, okay? Um, I think there's there's definitely been an increase in the amount of um, diversity of holdings of altcoins. I think if you surveyed, if you survey, well, I, I actually know one of my friends did it. Um, he ran two surveys, one February 2014, one 2013, and there's, much greater diversity of holdings um, in 2014 than 2013. People are really holding lots of different different altcoins, but they, I mean, still for me, you know, the 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 introduction of Dogecoin would not have had an impact on the Bitcoin price. Um, at least that's what that's what I think. And the reason why I think that's the case today is that Bitcoin doesn't behave like a normal currency today. Now, if everything starts to behave more like a currency and take into account the real like supply of the underlying uh, of the underlying currency, then then we might see the effects that we're talking about. If they are, if there is also substitutability between them. Yeah. So my my thoughts on this are I, I agree with you largely. But uh, my thoughts is like, where is this going in the future? Uh, it's true, right? At the moment, it's not really a substitution. You have some uh, light coins. You know, here in Berlin, there's a lot of things you can do with Bitcoin. You know, a lot of places to go, things to buy. Litecoin, that's not the case. I don't think there's a single place. Um, so I agree at the moment, it's not really a substitution thing. Uh, sub, uh, subs- valid substitution. But uh, just kind of touching on this, uh, this week... I think it illustrates this point. This week, a company called Poc.io uh, in the UK, they made some announcement that they accept uh, eight different cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, Quarkcoin, and God knows what. And they're selling gift cards like, like gift. So you can buy uh, a Starbucks gift cards, for example. And I think the interesting point here is because most merchants will accept Bitcoin through payment processors. For the payment processors, if the altcoins are traded on an exchange, it's trivial to say you can accept, you can pay with any altcoin. And, you know, we'll trade it for the merchant, we'll trade it into Bitcoin and he gets Bitcoin at a, a marginal fee or um or into dollars, euros, etc. How uh, BitPay does it today, and I think I heard once that Coinbase hasn't integrated Litecoin, for example, also because of usability things, because they think it's confusing when people now have different currencies. I guess it's, it's hard to make a wallet like that, and then uh, they have new users; they don't know which one should I buy. But I don't know if that's going to hold, and I think in the future I could. I could imagine that it will be, it won't really matter. Do you pay with Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin? Any of them are fine. So do you see it as like, I mean, possibly this is quite a nice way to look at it. And something that I've thought about is that there's kind of a, a market for cryptocurrency and you've got to look at the overall mark, like 
market cap or supply of all of these coins. Yeah, but that can that can fluctuate from one day yeah. to the next. So tomorrow, you know, another Dogecoin comes out, uh, and uh, that that market cap can fluctuate quite uh, rapidly, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. Um, now, 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 I think it gets slightly even more complex when the um, like because of the mining situation because you can mine all these different well if, it, if you've got like script then you can mine any script coin flick of a switch um, so you know there's the, the, it, they are very tightly bound uh, all these all these altcoins yeah no that's true I I don't have the answer to this. I think it's a it's an interesting question, but it's you know it's one that was brought up. For example, maybe I'll just read a part of this quote. Um, so this is from Eric Posner. He's a um, a, a very well known legal law professor at the University of Chicago, and it was in the Goldman Report. And so, so other. Virtual currencies are flooding the market. If these other currencies act as competitors, then we're stuck with just as much volatility in exchange rate risk uh, at home as we currently have to deal with in transacting abroad. If there's no limit to the supply, it would be very difficult for the currencies to maintain their value and very little reason for people to hold them, given that they could easily become worthless. I also disagree with those who believe that Bitcoin will prevail as the first mover because of network effects. Network effects will not be strong because exchanges can handle multiple currencies. I, I, I guess we've kind of you know we've covered that, uh, but I, I guess a key thing here will be really the question of how much of a network effect is there, and how much will there be a fluid kind of a fluid environment where you can just go from one to the other, you can pay with any, which would, of course, uh, really lessen the the strength of the Bitcoin position. I, I, I would just want to add one thing here, and it's something that um, not a lot of people think about. The, the network effect, I think the network effect in Bitcoin is huge. Um, and the reason, the reason that, it, I mean, everyone knows about telling all your friends to buy Bitcoin because that means the price goes up. But the, the, the more significant thing for me is a kind of more lock-in effect where once the early adopters of Bitcoin had their holdings and saw the value of their coins go up, they then became kind of an angel investor class where they were able to pay for lots of developer time to develop tools and apps for the Bitcoin ecosystem. And this kind of like internal thing is is self-perpetuating where more people join, the price of Bitcoin goes up, the large holders are now can pay for more developer time to develop more apps to 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 sort of make this ecosystem great. And that's a we've never seen that type of innovation model before. And I think that that's been a huge strength of Bitcoin. Um, that's yeah. interesting. I completely agree. That's actually what I was talking about at the talk on Thursday. That's exactly the point. And I, I, I absolutely agree. I also think you bring up an important point, which is that the early adopters, they will have an, an interest in this not happening. They will have an interest in Bitcoin maintaining its dominant positions. 
but if we, so I, I agree for them, and of course they have a lot of influence. You have a company now, and you ask like, well, do I want to integrate all these altcoins? Well, if you're a strong Bitcoin holder, then your interest in that may be limited. But the point is, if we talk about Bitcoin scaling from what is now perhaps a few hundred thousand really active users to uh, a few hundred million, then all these new people coming in, they don't have the same vested interest in Bitcoin. Hundred percent, hundred. And this is this gets to like the the real key point here is that this is about the politics of Bitcoin. So. The early adopters have a certain set of incentives that are not even that well understood in terms of like the broader public. And then you've got these new adopters who also have incentives that might stand against, exactly as you say, against the existing Bitcoin holders. And, you you know, there's there's lots of trade-offs that are going to happen here. And it's for me, it's not that clear that firstly, people understand these trade-offs. And secondly, yeah, I think you've got kind of opposing interests there where, well, why am I going to have to buy expensive Bitcoins off a guy who's been holding them since 2009 when I could buy Dogecoin and sit on that, you know? The, yeah, ex- exactly. And use, it, and use it to transact. And then, you know, then we're into kind of really interesting territory. <laughs> And I think this is something you see. This is something if you read forums, Facebook posts on Bitcoin groups, etc. A lot of people who come new, they, that's exactly the way they think. They're like, well, Bitcoin, you know, it's too expensive. It's over, etc. So, uh, you know, that's for those people. I'm now, I'm much more invested in Dogecoin or some other coin. That's like where I'm going to, where I'm going to sort of go with. And uh, I think you, we, see, we are seeing that those dynamics. I, yeah. I want to ask something. So what you just said, Brian, that's supposing that people that get into cryptocurrencies are betting on the fact that the cryptocurrency's price will go up, right? Because if, um, you're just use, if you're just buying Bitcoin to be able to use it as a payment system, then it really doesn't matter what the price of Bitcoin is, right? As long as you're buying enough to, to be able to yeah. cover your whatever, you know, yeah, whatever you're for- using it for. From a ver- from a very like practical point of view, you're right. But the point is that you know, like we're social beings, and it's political that I have to pay someone who sat on bitcoins for four years. I, I I'm giving him a huge reward for doing that. Do you right. see what I mean? That's like, what you mean, yeah. That's a that's a that's a let's let's say that's like a political aspect of this project. Is that it's not a Ponzi scheme. It's not a Ponzi scheme. I don't think it is a Ponzi scheme. But I, I am, by joining it, making a decision that I place value on the fact that this guy or girl has held Bitcoin since 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And if you think of what's going to happen if Bitcoin gets adopted widely, we will see huge distributions of wealth. And... Bitcoin is extremely unequally distributed. So the question is also if people, if the, the, there's kind of a neutral decision, do I do I, I need to buy some cryptocurrency because I want to buy this thing over there, for example. But I can use any cryptocurrency because they have a payment processors that can trade it and, and the, the merchant doesn't care. So now 
you do exactly have that kind of political aspect to the decision, which is you are determining as well the nature of that redistribution. Where does it go by choosing which cryptocurrency to invest in or to purchase? And and I think Bitcoin may have a problem there in because it's so unequally distributed. I have a question. Um that's something I've been thinking about. It. I wanted to get you guys' opinion on this because uh, you guys are so much well, so much more well versed in economics than I am. Um, so, what happens when the Bitcoin price goes up and you have these people who become in- incredibly rich, okay, because they they hold something that has a lot of value, like rich beyond. Let, let's say Bitcoin goes to a thousand, uh, uh, what, like four thousand, five thousand, or even ten thousand dollars a coin, right? And so these people that hold hundreds and thousands of coin become extremely rich. What happens then to this? The what? What effect does that have on just the regular economy? Like, what? What does that do for just the price of bread, for instance? Does that have any effect on on macroeconomics at all, or? I don't know if I'm being clear or not. No, no, no. You're being totally clear, and it's a, it's a really, it's a really good question. I mean, I'll tell you. Let, let me give you a, a slight bit of background on this. Is that when I at Oxford, when I speak to professors, a lot of them say to me, it doesn't have any macroeconomic significance at this point. And yeah, you're right. That once once you start getting a huge, say say the market cap goes up and like there's huge amounts of this currency in the world, well. You know that that is going to have an impact. It, it would it would technically raise prices now. Yeah, um, but if you think about this in in some way, I think it becomes kind of clear. So let's say we have uh, a few thousand people in London that have a substantial you know a substantial amount of Bitcoin, or or in Berlin, for example. Let's say we have uh, a thousand people in Berlin. Now, if those become extremely valuable, what are they going to do? I think one thing they'll probably do would be buy apartments, no? Well, first they're going to uh, go to space. Yeah, they're going to fly to space <laughs> uh, with Richard Branson, and then they will buy an apartment uh, or things like that. So, I, I mean, if you look at something like real estate prices, I could absolutely see that having a certain effect, just like you've had in in Silicon Valley, you know, I think. Yeah. Things like the IPO of Facebook did have an effect on real estate prices. So basically, what you're saying is that places where Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem is uh, is very vibrant, might be um, some of the you know, like more expensive cities to buy real estate later. <laughs> yeah. So 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 here it kind of relates. Back, it, it kind of relates back to what we were saying earlier, where like actually this is you you can think about it as a transfer of wealth into those zones because the point is that. When someone's buying, say, 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 someone buys Bitcoin in South Africa, um, and the price of Bitcoin goes up, and there's like lots of South African money going into propping the price of Bitcoin up, then if someone's holding a lot of Bitcoin in Berlin, you've just had a transfer of value to that person from like from outside the economy, basically, um, and now they've got a higher ability to spend, and and it's going to raise prices in Berlin. So you've got interesting dynamics where you can have like transfers of wealth around the world based on the Bitcoin price. Now this is assuming that like it becomes very substantial, but I, I, yeah, it's interesting dynamics to think about. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be extremely fascinating to watch this. And I guess no, no one really has the answer because it's just something we haven't seen. So even the question of how do you think about this question is not clear. I guess it would be quite similar to thinking about like asset prices, uh, asset prices in 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 certain regions where there's large concentration of holding of certain assets that have gone up in value, like London house prices reacting to stock market booms and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think if you if you look at some things like what you were asking Sebastian, what's the effect on prices? Then I think that works well, right? So we can we can use the analogy of a stock market boom, or or perhaps I think the IPO is it perhaps even more because the IPO is a small a small group that benefit, and I think it's going to be like that with Bitcoin too, right? Um, right. But then. If we, well, you mentioned, for example, if you take in the global account, for example, then that's something we haven't seen, and and there there will be a lot of other aspects that too that are just normal. Well, no, but I think your IPO example is perfect because who's funding that Facebook IPO? It doesn't come from San Francisco. The money, the money that's transferred into San Francisco to fund that housing boom comes from all over the world. It's people. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's people pumping money basically into San Francisco, and that's what makes the house price go. So I think, yeah, it's it's quite a. Um, I, I think I really like your really like your analogy there. Cool, um, Jonathan. What's that? Tell us about uh, some of the things you're working on. Yeah, so I mean the. Um, we've spoken a little bit about coinometrics. Um, just to say, um, it's uh, we're still in the early stages. We're actually um, we're growing out our team a little bit um, at the moment, and so if there are any developers listening out on the podcast, do get in touch through our support ticket on our on our website or through Twitter. Um, we're looking to link up with people who are um, interested in presenting clear statistics and metrics to measure the Bitcoin and, and other other altcoins so coming. Can you just explain what Coinmetrics is? So Coinometrics is uh, a website that was started in, oh gosh, uh, October 2013 um, by Scott Johnson, who's um, a Cornell MBA JD. Um, and he, we started working together from about the first, the first week that the site went up. And we are just trying to put things into context, present metrics, how to how we should be measuring what's going on in the Bitcoin economy. Um, because, you know, a lot of the charts and data that you see out there are just um, data dumps from the blockchain or price data that's just been sort of quoted um, and charted. And what we wanted to do is kind of add another layer of analysis and say, well, usually when we think about the economy, there has to be some work, some uh, analytical tools that we employ to really get at what's, well, what, what are the trends, what's important, um, not just how, like, presenting data per se. So we started creating a couple of metrics. Um, we've got a volatility metric where we look at how the price is evolving over time. Um, we've got this map that we've just put out where we show what current, what, what, what percentage of global trade is denominated in those different currencies. Um, we, we created a metric about price dispersion between the different exchanges 
that's gone completely broken since Mount Gox um, <laughs> yeah. flew up. Um, so um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're fixing it in the new site. So the, the old site's not, not fixed yet. Um, so you're, you're building a new site? Yeah, so we, um, we're integrating a lot more blockchain um, data. So uh, we've, got a, we've got a new logo, a whole new look, and uh, we're hoping to launch in the next week or so. So, um, yeah, the, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a little bit frustrating going back to your uh, current website and seeing things that, that don't work and saying, well, it would be better if we could fix all of that, but it's not, it's not worth our while because we're pushing, pushing out this new update. Um, so are you but, guys, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you obviously know of uh, Zero Block and their recent acquisition of um, what is it, RTBTC? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so how is Cornometrics going to compete with that? Is that what you're, that kind of service that you're looking to build with kind of premium API access with the premium data for traders and things like that? Yeah, so that, I mean that's that's one way that we're that we're moving in that direction. I think the um, the zero block uh, is really centered around that app and really about traders um, and about providing like good info for traders. We're we're more interested in providing um, more ge- more general uh, information for also journalists and businesses. Mm-hmm. So um, trying to trying to get at what the economic activity is on the blockchain will give businesses a better idea of what um, they should be doing um, and what their competitors are up to and stuff like that. So we're more about um, providing more general information, not just trade-based information. Um, and the model, the model kind of starts to evolve where we're, sort, we're also developing some um, metrics where we measure fragilities on the Bitcoin network. So we, um, at the moment, I'm working on a, a selfish mining detection <coughs> metric where we look at the um, number of blocks that have come out in close succession and sort of plot. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And essentially, stuff like that, uh, which we're, we're continuing to work on, will, uh, will be valuable to the community and i mean some of it we'll make available for free and then um it, when i start doing this full-time well someone's going to pay the bill so we're going to think about how to how to monetize some of that and uh i think providing premium premium services where um yeah premium apis where businesses can really take a close look at what's going on in the blockchain is something that, that we're, we're we're going to compete in I think that's really interesting because to have that kind of a freemium model where this data is um, the data is free to be accessed and can kind of provide uh, valuable information for journalists and other people that are interested in Bitcoin, and then to uh, monetize it with premium data, I think is kind of kind of the way to go because you're in any case uh, you're doing the community a service and you're doing Bitcoin a service by having that data available for everyone. Yeah, and I think like so, some sort of like delayed delayed information on the on the site versus the freemium model um, is something that we definitely look at. Um, at this point, I mean, it's really about um, making sure that we get our our kind of IP right. So about how we how we how we develop metrics that are not just like data dumps, but how we really go about constructing uh, rigorous. Um, analysis and and that's 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 what I'm most focused on is is 
how do I stand up and say that this is what is this is this is the volatility of Bitcoin or this is uh, is our dispersion measure correct and is it producing value for people um, and we're really driven by uh, an ambition to be the best in that uh, and I think there's a there's a huge void um, in the ecosystem uh, for good good data that's being looked after and presented well absolutely yeah yeah I agree I mean I think your volatility is, is something I actually look at quite quite frequently because I think it's the only decent volatility chart I've seen yeah so um, <laughs> I'm actually redesigning it at the moment we're, we're going to move to a, a rolling 30 day window um, where instead of a linear regression well, the linear regression, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like that at all. Um, yeah, I agree. No, no. <laughs> um, There's a lot of information lost there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the R squared on that stuff, I mean, it's uh, shocking. Anyway, the, um, but the, um, the, the, the also the, the thing is that in volatility metrics, you also want to have window, uh, when, when the price jumps, say, 40% in a day, that should, that should extend over a longer period than it does in our measure at the moment. At the moment, we're taking a 30-day a volatility where we're comparing the return that you would have got in a 30-day period. Um, we're kind of trying to, trying to measure daily, daily volatility, um, but sort of averaged over a longer stretch. And that will that'll be on the new site. Um, okay, cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's... There's so much work that needs to be done on this, um, and uh, I'm very excited to be speaking at Coin Summit uh, to to present some of these um, these data points. And uh, if you look in the news center, I write I write articles as well, um, and the to provide really some some objectivity into what's sometimes what I feel is a, a bit of a shallow discussion. Um, I think. The um, some of these conferences I look at, and you know the the level of the level of stats and stuff being quoted is just not not good enough. Um, and we're we're trying to step in. That's great. Can you tell us about uh, what your talk with Coins on that? So um, the talk is titled uh, "Bitcoin: A Flash in the Pan." Um, so I'm speaking with um, the founder of um, Zappo, um, Wences Caceres. Um, and Susan Athey, who's a professor at Stanford. Um, and we're really going to, I think this is going to be centered around um, some of the fragilities of Bitcoin. Uh, some of the, maybe even some of the issues that we've discussed today, um, scalability issues. Um, I think this altcoin story is something that I'm going to work on um, for the talk. Uh, and I mean, obviously, uh, Wences is, is a real, um, real, uh, his Twitter handle is a Bitcoin fanboy. Uh, I, I like to come at Bitcoin with a, a, a skeptical eye with, um, with, uh, with some more analysis and data. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of quiz him and see, see what, see what he thinks of some of the stats and, and what's going on in terms of scalability. Uh, and I'm sure Susan Athey, Susan Athey has been at some of the Senate hearings and weighing in very heavily with 
her knowledge of payment systems. And uh, she sees, uh, I mean, we all see a, a big potential for the technology, um, but I'm sure she'll, she'll weigh in with some of, the, um, some of her experiences from the, from the regulation standpoint. So uh, I'm very excited for that panel. Um, it's on the uh, it's on the 26th, so day two of the conference, and um, we yeah, um, it's the first session of the day. So um, and I'm, I'm I'm very excited to hear what what and meet a lot of the a lot of the big names from the space. I think I don't think I've seen a lineup that's as good as Coin Summit. Um, I know it's amazing. The- you have like Mark Andreessen and uh, all the C- the CEOs of the major companies, and this yeah, it's a it, it would be a fantastic uh, conference to go to. I agree. Yeah, uh, Charlie Lee, the founder of Litecoin, um, Zach Harvey from Lamassu. Um, yeah, there's tons of um, really really great um, really great speakers. Um, I'm I'm going out for for ten days, so I'm 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 going to have plenty of time to see. When are, when are you heading out? Uh, on Wednesday. Oh, okay, already. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've never been to the valley, so I thought I'd spend some time there. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, I um, hope you have a great uh, trip to uh, to the U.S. It's in San Francisco, right? Yeah, it's in San Francisco. So, uh, and maybe when you come back, uh, you can. Uh, Come back on the show and tell us about your experience. Yeah, the only the, the, there's two kind of final plugs that I'd like to make. Here. Sure, go uh, ahead. Um, one is one is academic research. There's a lot of computer science research being done on Bitcoin and similar types of cryptography um, and systems that that is being that's going out there. That's really cool, and people should go and check it out. Um, there's a, I think in April there's a financial cryptography. Um, academic conference happening in Barbados that I really wanted to go to that I'm not going to. Um, but the, the there's a lot of good work being done. More needs to be done, especially on the economic side and on the more social political perspectives. Because uh, I think that this is a, a really fantastic piece of technology that can be harnessed for a lot of good in the world. And I think that it's really about getting some of these researchers to, to think clearly about the issues that we've thought about today and to put out, you know, coherent arguments, thoughts, provocations to, to, to send this debate forward. Um, so I'm the convener of the Oxford Virtual Currencies Working Group. We have, like, sort of monthly seminars about all different issues in Bitcoin, governance, structures, incentives, mining, um, intro sessions and everything. Um, some of the legal aspects as well. So we're bringing together geographers, lawyers, uh, psychologists, just um, different types of sociologists even, um, to, to think about some of these very complicated issues. And I uh, would like to just plug it as, if anyone is in Oxford and wants to sort of get involved or, or uh, wants to collaborate on any academic research, uh, I'm I'm happy to do so, and at the moment my my research is sort of focused on um, some of the basic incentives of mining, particularly when the block reward halves. So, um, trying to think about how the network would fund uh, fund itself uh, in the future. That's very that's very interesting. Perhaps we'll try to talk about that at some other point as well. Yeah, 
um, not not something to get into right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean that's too big of a topic. Sure. No, but I, I, I'm. Uh, what what I find interesting is that uh, yeah, like we're going to see a lot of academic research um, being done in this field because for the time being, I mean, we're talking about businesses, we're talking about uh, investments and things like that. But you know, the academic perspective um, has to be. Uh, has to be put forward, I think. Uh, it's interesting because I, I met a guy just at my meetup this week, a uh, political science major, and uh, I saw him taking notes in the corner, and I went to see him afterwards. And I said, are you a journalist? He says, no, I'm a student. I'm doing my master's thesis on Bitcoin. So I just came to get you know take some notes. So uh, I think it's really interesting what you're doing. Yeah. Right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I think it was a, it was a great show, and it was lots of fun to talk about all these issues. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and hopefully we'll be able to have you on again uh, soon. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So thank you very so, much for downloading and for listening to the show. Uh, we want to thank all our listeners. Uh, and uh, also, if um, we, what we'd like is uh, for you to give us feedback. We'd said this before, and if you, if you could, go to iTunes uh, and, or SoundCloud or wherever you download the podcast and give us feedback on the show you know, give us ratings that really helps in iTunes in fact uh, if you could rate the show that would be uh, that would be very much appreciated you can also find us on Twitter at EpicenterBTC where we tweet uh, regularly yeah and if you want to subscribe to our newsletter we send out every Friday a uh, newsletter just about the news and developments in the Bitcoin world so you can do that at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter and also, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips for our tipping addresses. Okay. Well, thanks so much and look forward to being back soon. Mm-hmm.